You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hi everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. This is the podcast that shares and inspires unconventional career journeys. Please help the podcast grow by telling your friends all about it and leave us a nice review and rating on iTunes, Castro, and all the other podcast players that you use. I would highly appreciate it. Now, today's podcast interview is with Miguel Fernando. He is the founder of Moment Financial. And Miguel and I actually met because he turned out to be a listener of the podcast. And after seeing my OMD Ventures sticker on my laptop, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, I listened to your podcast. And that's how our friendship blossomed. And now he is coming on as a guest, which is pretty awesome. So if you're a listener, don't be shy. If you ever see me, come say hi. Maybe you'll come on the podcast in the future. So Miguel's company, Moment Financial, is a fintech company based around Toronto that he started just about maybe like six months ago um, when he started having the idea. And it's an app that is designed to help people in all manners of personal finance to really help you feel financially free. So I recommend you check it out at momentfinancial.com if you're interested after our interview. Miguel started his uh, career as a economic researcher at RBC, and he moved over to international wealth management with a focus on Central and Latin America. He made the pivot to work in a product role and become a product manager after realizing he enjoyed building internal tools and solutions while working for the bank and made the leap into joining a fintech company while teaching himself product management, coding, and all that related technical knowledge through boot camps and online courses. He went on to build the advisory solutions product for Purpose Investments, which some of you may know, they are a pretty big ETF company. And he built the solution for Purpose Advisory Solutions business and made another leap into entrepreneurship, where now he is a full-time bootstrapped entrepreneur. Something... It was something really he said he felt like he had to do, and it's something we also talk about deeper in the interview where I could relate, where there's this kind of weird gut instinct that it's sometimes hard to explain to people unless they've kind of gone through it themselves. Hopefully we do. We try to dissect that a little bit. But in our chat, we talk a lot about the early years of entrepreneurship, like mainly, like I'd say, like the first year or so of it. Um, what it was like making this decision for Miguel, what it was like making the decision for myself, what gap he saw in the market when he was making the the decision, and much more about the ins and outs, the dailies, and even a bit about the industry itself in the wealth management space. And so without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Miguel. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Miguel Fernando. Hey Miguel, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Miguel here is the founder at Moment Financial and my friend at WeWork Labs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, I think that's how like we first met. Like We were just working out at WeWork and then we ended up getting to know each other and I practically see you every day. Yeah, actually, well, I think the first, first time that we met was because I saw your uh, logo on your laptop right. and I had recently listened to your podcast with the labs manager, Tom. So uh, I recognized it, and then I asked you. I said, "You know, oh, are you, are you Daniel, like you did the um, the podcast with with Tom." And you're like, "Yeah." So I already listened to to the podcast before meeting you. Yeah, yeah. I'd, it's one of those cases where for me, it was like, "Oh wow!" Actually, having my logo 
stickered on my laptop actually works. It does some kind of marketing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I never really thought about that for for myself, but I should probably get one printed <laughs> out. Yeah, it's, it's one of those kind of uh, nice swag things where I was like, oh, what can I do for a really cheap cost? And I went to like Vistaprint and I bought stickers for I think three dollars or something, and you get like a pack of twelve. Mm-hmm. And so I just got one, stuck it on, and have eleven that are unused at the moment. I'll have to go do that after. after <laughs> And so, Miguel, um, you're the founder of Moment Financial. And so for people who may not be familiar with what Moment Financial is, um, can you kind of give an overview of what your company is, what you do? Sure. So uh, we're a budgeting and financial planning application. Um, our goal is to guide your financial life so that you can make confident decisions with your money. And uh, it kind of came from you know my history and being in the wealth management industry for uh, most of my life, the first part in investment advice and um and just general investment uh, research. And then I moved over to more technology-focused side of wealth management. And, um, you know, it just took, took a, lot of, a lot of years of seeing how suboptimal the different approaches are out there that exist today and, uh, and a lot of frustration with, with what's out there and just wanting to go off my own and, and start something that can give as much value as possible to the end consumer without the biases that are uh, existing in the industry today mm. and right now it's um i don't your website is momentfinancial.com so yep. people can go check it out but the actual product itself is an is it an app form yeah it's an app form so we actually use a progressive web application uh, framework to um to make the app so it's not a native application but you'll be able to add it to your home screen mm. uh, we did that just because we kind of went through a couple different iterations early on and there were some different reasons why we wanted to make it some uh, like a hybrid application that you could use on both mobile and, and on desktop. Now we focus more on on mobile, but uh, it still made sense to just keep going with the same the same framework and, and doing it as a progressive web app. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned how the early part of your career was spent in finance, and I think we ended up kind of connecting on that as well because we both were in the asset management, wealth management space um, in our careers. I think, but when you started. In university, you started you studied at Carleton, and you studied international business there. Yeah, that's right. Why so, specifically uh, international business? Yeah, I think I, I remember back in in high school, we had uh, this one day that was um, I went to high school in Ottawa, and then they had one of these um, these days where they brought in the high school kids and showed them a whole bunch of different programs. And I just happened to go into this one presentation, and they had someone on stage who was telling about their experience. They did international business. They concentrated in um, in finance. They were working for, I think, um, Department of Foreign Affairs and International Trade, which was interesting to me at the time. And uh, and part of that program was, one, you had to learn another language. And the second was uh, that you do one year abroad. So for me, uh, you know, living in just outside of Ottawa my whole life, it was really attractive to go and actually study for uh, study in another country. So right then I said, okay, you know what, this this program looks good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to go for this. Hmm. Did you grow up in Ottawa, born and raised? Yeah, yeah. I I grew up uh, born and raised uh, west end of end of Ottawa. Okay. And was this kind of idea of travel like always something that you wanted to have in your life, or were you want to just leave home kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think it was get out of, get out of Ottawa partially. Um, you know, growing up with a name like Miguel uh, Fernando, everybody expects you to speak Spanish. So that was part of the program was that I actually learned Spanish for the first time. Uh, my my dad's actually. Uh, from the Philippines, 
And my mom's French Canadian, so there's no Spanish in there. Oh, <laughs> but everybody always expected me to speak Spanish, so I kind of uh, went off the first couple of years of university and started to learn learn Spanish, and then went to Spain, lived in Madrid for the year. Oh wow, how was Madrid? It, it was amazing. I think most of the time when I talk to people about going to to Spain or they going to go travel, um, I say you know Barcelona. If you're going to go to one place, is probably the place place to go. There's such a good diversity of things to do and uh, great architecture and, and everything there. But um, and you can get by in English pretty easily in in, in Barcelona more or less. Uh, Madrid is a more um, it's a really lively city when you live there and you, where you know where you're going, you you know people. But uh, maybe as like a first timer, it might not be the the top choice. But still, lots of stuff to do. It's a cool, mm. cool city. Yeah, because I think I think I might have told you I was thinking of going to Madrid sometime in like March, April. I don't know at the moment anymore, but it's still a place I. I'm more interested in going to Madrid than Barcelona. Like Barcelona just seems so touristy, and Madrid seems yeah. more like a city with industries, etc. Like not saying Barcelona isn't, but it seems, I feel like Madrid might be closer to what Toronto is, what like London is, kind of thing. What's your take on that? Yeah, and I think it's it's more you get more of an idea of what that that culture is like. You know, yeah, like what people in Spain actually are like, maybe, and kind of more of the culture instead of tourist focused culture. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's still. Um, it still takes a little while to kind of find your bearings. I think when you're in Madrid, because um, part of part of the experience of living there is really getting into the culture as much as you can. You know, going uh, going out with friends. Like a big thing there is most people have really like a lot of Europe. They have smaller apartments, and then people generally go and meet outside. They'll go to the bars. They'll go to the the cafes to meet and and hang out with their friends. So you know, it's a place where you want to go. You want to go with friends. You want to meet people. You want to um, kind of like open up your network as much as you can while you're there. Mm. Are, are people very open to outsiders not my experience is no not not really i think yeah one, that's the stereotype i've heard about europeans yeah. in general yeah so i don't know about europeans in general i think like you can see that about especially in big cities compared to small cities same thing with paris compared to going to a smaller yeah. a smaller city in france um madrid it's one of these these proud countries proud of their language um what i found is that when you go there even if someone did speak english or they could speak english they wouldn't they would speak Spanish full on very quick and um if you don't understand they didn't really care. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> but it, it's a beautiful beautiful city. It was a lot of fun. Like a, a great uh, great nightlife at the time. You know, it was early early 20s when I was there, so um overall it was really good, but it's also been a long time since I've been there. So. Mm-hmm. And when you graduated, you started your career at RBC. Um it, you were a research associate in the economics department? Yep. Yeah, so uh, one of the first jobs, I had an earlier job before that where it was kind of a back office job, and then I moved over into uh, research for um, economics at RBC, uh, where I worked with the, um, the chief um, uh, chief economist, associate or assistant chief economists, and it was a lot of just kind of research, putting together decks for them, um, and general general research on, on economics, but it really kind of gave me a more practical side of the... Um, of economics, which I didn't do, you know, you don't get too much of that from, from school, you get more of the theoretical, but it was nice to really kind of get into the practical side of things. Mm-hmm. And then from there, you moved on to Dominion Securities of RBC, which is more like the wealth management side. Is that, was that a purposeful thing where you wanted to get closer to the actual asset management component of the business? Or like, how did that turn out? Like, how did it come about? Yeah, I think, well, part of that was the um, the advisor that I worked with, the the branch that I was in was uh, called the International um, Advisory Group. 
So all of the clients or the majority of the clients came from South America, Central America. So there's a lot of Spanish speaking clients. So oh, wow. that was part of the reason why, um, why I kind of went in that direction. It was interesting. I actually was choosing between two places to go stay more on the capital market side. And there was an opportunity in, um, in London and, um, I'd already started dating my, my now wife. So I decided to stay here and take this job. And it was, uh, it was kind of like a fork, fork in the road where I went, went this direction to go, uh, more into wealth management. And then also, um, something that I could use, you know, the Spanish that I'd done in, in university. It seems like the, like this continuous, um, international connection has always been there in like your career. It's like since from school, like you, you've constantly tried to like build that kind of part into, I guess, what you did at work. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was always interesting, especially coming, coming from that program in, in university, it was always interesting to go either go back and live abroad or to have a job where you could go and travel more. Uh, so that was, that was kind of, it played in for sure, but I definitely wanted to be in the wealth management space at the time. Yeah. And from there you moved on to, how do you, how do you pronounce it? Croesus? Croesus. Croesus. Yeah. yeah. So that was actually, um, I think a big, a big turning point was between those two because uh, that international advisory group for RBC, they had done a strategic change where they decided that they had, um, I think, exposure to over 160 countries or something like that. And uh, they were doing some cost cutting and wealth management. So they wanted to bring that exposure down to a list of maybe 20 or 30 countries. So a lot of these clients that were being serviced out of this branch uh, were in these countries that they were trying to cut out uh, for compliance reasons and, uh, and cost cutting reasons. So uh, they actually closed down their entire branch. They told all the advisors that were there to go go somewhere else. They let them keep their book. They weren't going to um, go against them for any non-compete of any business, most of which are uh, clients that they didn't want anyway. But um, they closed down that entire branch and it gave me the opportunity to kind of transition in my career. And I, at that point, I, I had always been interested in building these small solutions uh, within all these other jobs just to improve processes. And I um, was very frustrated when there was a lot of manual processes and whatever we were doing. And I kind of always had some technical background, but it was very limited. So I spent um, a lot of time in those jobs and the stuff that I really liked was building these these solutions. Can you give me an example of like the solution? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff in, in RVC economics was around um, building decks and, and charts and everything for research. That's like half of what you do in research is, is kind of like grinding away at, at these uh, charts and presentations for, you know, for the more senior people. So we did, uh, or I built this uh, toolbar just to help um, uh, standardize the way that all the charts did, looked and to generate them, you know, much quicker um, at the the job at RBC Dominion Securities and built um, a tool for, for the advisor to be able to run the quarterly um, review cycle with their clients. So the way that she looks at her book of business uh, and the way that she does asset allocation across different geographies. Uh, or the sector allocation for fixed income and the fixed income side of the portfolio. It's just different from what was represented in the software that they were using and in the reporting that they were using. So this really was just a tool to, re- to pull in the information from, um, from the, 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 the portfolio management tools that they had at RBC and then to produce something that was really helping her tailor her message to um, to her clients and showing how their their portfolios were positioned, what changes that they are recommending making, and um, just their overlook or uh, overview on the, the markets. Mm. And 
So with that in mind, you ended up joining Creases in a product role. How does that uh, jump work out? Because it's it's not a convention, conventional one by far. Like, you know, most people don't go from wealth management to be a product role in, with like technical solutions. And I think Creases was a software company, right? That's yep. in the wealth management space. Yeah. So they focus on uh, portfolio management and uh, client relationship management software for investment advisors. So I had that that side from the investment advisory business. And then there was a bit of a gap there because once they closed down RBC, Dominion Securities, the, um, the international group, I took off some time uh, in between and then just spent all of my time doing education on um, software development. So just going through tons and tons of um, tutorials and, uh, and all these projects to, to learn more about the software side of the business. Was that like a, you preemptively decided that, okay, I'm, I'm kind of done with this wealth management side where the kind of role that you were doing before and you just wanted to go fully into the product side? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, after, after realizing this, the connection between liking to build those, you know, those small products within these different jobs, I realized that that's what I liked a lot more than the actual investment mm-hmm. management or wealth management side of the business. So um, I said, that's great, but, you know, I need to, one, understand how things work if I want to build a better tool for advisors. And um, two, I just need to have a better proficiency with software development in general. Like the last time I had done um, real software development was when I was really young making websites with pure, like just basic HTML, like the most basic web pages back in, you know, late 1990s kind of thing. Uh, so I know I had to actually educate myself on how things work now um, and just get a better idea of how, how software products are, are managed to be able to, to go more in that direction. Uh, it, all, it all really came from wealth management business, knowing that there could be much better solutions for advisors to run their business. Um, Creasis was a good option because one, it gave me the opportunity to go work for a software company. Uh, two, it was somewhere where I could actually get into a product um, role because they, uh, you know, they focus on the end user, which was what I previously did in my in my jobs. So, um, so it was a way that I could transition over more into the software world and then learn more about how uh, how the data flew. Uh, sorry, the data flow worked from the back office through to the actual portfolio management software. Uh, to get a kind of a, a lay of the land of how things work behind the scenes so that I could set myself up for in the future doing something that was more advisor focused and in software. Mm-hmm. And like when you tell me the story, like, you know, I, I find a lot of stories too, where in hindsight, it, it just makes empirical sense. And of course, someone who was an end user would have a better understanding of the product. And so it sometimes feel like, at least when I was trying to get into the investment world too, it felt like things would make sense because I was like, oh, well, I was an accountant, so I know how to read financial statements. I built the financial statements and then I was a consultant, so I fixed all the operational problems. So yeah, it makes kind of sense that I, I should be an investor that can analyze these companies and I'll actually know how all the backend stuff works. But the industry sometimes has a different opinion where they go, mm, no, we just like people from investment banking. Although it, when you actually examine the work, sometimes it just doesn't make any sense. And I think that might persist in the product role too, where people might go, mm, but you're not an engineer. How would you know about the product? Yeah, I think, and I think in a, in a different software company, there's no way that I would have gotten into a, a product role or within a product group in, a, in an organization just because they look for things that are much more specific. They want to see things that you've built. They want to see 
uh, more tangible things. They want to know what your process is for prioritizing different features, for you know doing user research. Uh, whereas this company was just so deep in you know one target market, very defined, uh, high net worth investment advisors at big banks. Like they had half of the big six banks as their their clients. So it was um, it was one where they fi- they faced a challenge of getting product people up to speed with what their end users want in a very very complicated um, complicated industry for someone just jumping in out of out of nowhere. So they for them it makes sense to kind of have people that have at least worked at a bank or within some kind of wealth management role before. Mm, yeah, like that sounds similar to how one of my earlier guests he was a tax manager and then he ended up. Build, becoming a product manager for I think Shopify by building out the end kind of tax products mm-hmm. um, for the businesses because he came from the tax side and so there just seems to be like a way to build that up. But it seems how did you learn the technical side? Though? Like what was your process of you know maybe whether it was brushing up on code or even just learning the basic kind of wireframing techniques that product managers need to know and all that. Yeah, it's uh, so. I, there was two. There was the first part was a lot of self learning. Like I always like to learn things on on the side of my own anyway. That was always part of what I've done kind of historically. So I, I had gotten uh, subscriptions at the time. Uh, I used uh, Tree Team Treehouse um, as as a place to go and, and start learning different um, different languages. Uh, they had a good breadth of information because they also had courses on everything from design to prototyping to um, to the actual software development and and, er- and everything there, so uh, it gave me a good starting point to start building the foundational blocks. Uh, after that, I took a course with uh, BrainStation on product management. So they do, uh, I think it's once or twice a week in the evenings for I don't know eight or twelve weeks, and uh, I did that to kind of get more an idea of how the uh, how the process works for product management in general, and. Over time, it was just um, you know trying to piece these things together to figure out how it works. But uh, at the same time, I started transitioning over to my most recent role, which was really kind of putting those things to pra- in, into practice together. Okay, and so then you were learning all this stuff while you were working as a product guy at Creases, and then even when you moved over after Creases to Purpose Advisor Solutions, when you joined in another product capacity, you were continuously going through these courses and do, like learning on your own. Yeah, exactly. So the whole oh, okay. time, it kind of, it was always uh, required because when I went from, you know, the the job at Creasis where they were on a much older technology stack in general, uh, I never got into any of the actual code or anything when I was there. I was just learning on the side and trying to play around with a few things um, on the side, uh, making like, you know, I, I made uh, one pretty, pretty bad game right now or Back then, that was for just going through old Jeopardy clues and uh, and just being able to answer and and kind of like build up a score from the historical database of, of uh, Jeopardy clues. But the actual Creases job itself was purely kind of like business analyst product type type role. Um, when I got it to over to Purpose Advisor Solutions, it was a much more blank slate. So uh, there, it just I just had to go and learn about the different technologies to understand how we were going to put something together that was going to actually add value to the the advisors. Mm-hmm. And for context, I think Creases <clears throat> right now is something like a 150-person company. It's relatively like sizable, I think. It's like a mid-sized company now. Was it around that big as well, like when you 
first joined, like 100 plus people? Yeah, I think it was between 150 or 200 people okay. when when we were there. They had, um, they've been around for a long time. I think since the 80s was yeah. when uh, Remy uh, Terrier, who's the, the founder of, of that company, I think he was first building small solutions for National Bank. And then um, just grew it into this, you know, really, uh, really solid company that's been operating for decades now. And Purpose was a much smaller company compared to that, right? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, Purpose grew a lot even in the time that I was there. They started uh, being, you know, ETF company. Some built um, Claymore that that got sold to uh, BlackRock. And then he went off and did Purpose, another ETF company. And I think his, his vision was always to build something that was more broadly like a digital digital banking services across all different verticals of banking the first um the first one that he did was obviously the kind of like the production asset management side where he did etfs and then they started to acquire some smaller um smaller asset managers that were more um more active um and then from there they did a couple different acquisitions so for lending they bought thinking capital they um, acquired a company called ario that's doing like digital banking uh, services and then for the wealth management vertical uh, they actually created their own um, subdivision or other other company called purpose advisor solutions okay. so i was brought on at the beginning of that okay so then it was a branch off of the main purpose kind of umbrella so to speak yeah that's right so uh, he he had um he had brought on um a gentleman named uh, uh warren at the time to to lead the company as a, as a ceo and then he it was a very, I think, uh, open kind of playing field. But the idea was to to capitalize on the trend that was uh, very defined in the U.S. The um, registered investment advisor trend that's been going for years, where um, it's a way more fragmented market. But the investment advisors uh, there, they have a lot of options where they can go and be independent and be more in control of their overall uh, business and, and revenue. Whereas in Canada, you have you know the the six banks. That have a lot of the advisors to some uh, big wealth management companies, but a lot of the um, a lot of the models for those those advisors are uh, one where they get paid based on all of the revenue that they bring in, and then it gets split into a, a grid where effectively they get around fifty percent of the revenues that they bring in uh, to run their business. So over time, the the banks have been more trying to cut costs um, and have taken taken that grid so that the, the advisors are getting paid less and less over time. So part of the, the idea of building purpose advisor solutions was that we're going to convert some of these advisors over and give them an option to be able to actually go independent, run their business, um, have more control over over their overall uh, their overall operations. Okay. Wow. And like people who you have got to have heard of some safe purpose like investments. I feel like there's advertisements everywhere about like the ETF uh, solutions that are, are available and like the purpose investment ETFs everywhere. Like I see it all the time on like different kind of ads. Even though yeah. I think I've even seen it like in airports and stuff as well. And you know, like when you're in it, it seems like you know, you're in this new branch. You're building it out, and so it seems like you know you're. It's closer to like what you want to do. It's closer to like the wealth management space, closer to helping advisors. Why did you end up choosing to leave though after like spending like two and a half years there? Yeah, it, well, uh, it's funny because how I actually got in there in the first place, I actually left um, Cresis because I wanted to go and start building tools for advisors. So I lined up a couple 
a couple jobs um, to to build these like smaller tech tech solutions for investment advisors. Or like a consulting kind of role, like he wanted to just yeah. go and help other companies. Just like like advisors. So there's a couple okay. advisors that um, that I worked with before that I went I went and built out this this tool for them that was their own kind of like custom software. So I lined up a couple a couple jobs and said, okay, well I can actually make money doing something else. So I'm going to go. I left uh, Cresis. And it was um, kind of serendipitous that uh, the the old former CEO of Purpose Advisor Solutions, when he came in, uh, was just looking up people in general that had worked on advisor desktops or you know advisor software. So I was working for Cresis and said, okay, well I'll try to bring this guy in and maybe he can help kind of build out this advisor advisor desktop. Uh, so that's how I got into Purpose um, originally, and then you know I was there for better part of three three years, and I think. Um, there's a couple couple different things, but one one was I think there was always this urge to be um, be in charge of my own destiny. You know, not not like for any any old job, right? Most positions where you are um, when you're working for somebody else, you your range of outcomes um, is somewhat limited based on you know other people's decisions, what other people think about you, what other people are willing to to um, to you know to to give you in terms of like opportunity and i had a great opportunity there you know like psalm and everything was really really uh really good he was trying to grow everybody gave people opportunities but there was just something in me that always wanted to go and just do something on my own to fully be in charge of uh, my own destiny and you know if i failed and i have nobody to blame but myself and if i succeed then you know great but just wanted to to really kind of be off on on something on my own Ah, and it seems like you, I'm going to, actually, I'll take it back to the first maybe big pivot where you kind of had that realization um, from your role in finance that, you know, maybe product is where I want to go. Maybe like building solutions is like what actually I'm, I enjoy more of. Like, did you have an introspective process that you used to help make that decision? Because it's not a easy decision to just leave a field that you were spending like five years out of building a certain kind of skill to learn something new and transition to a completely different field? I think, I, I don't think that there was anything specific that I kind of did to, to come to that conclusion. I think I was at the time listening to a lot more than we've talked about listening to the same types of blogs and like Tim Ferriss and some of these other more entrepreneurial blogs. So there's always like an urge to do something entrepreneurial. Um, and I knew that being in the actual wealth business to be you know a wealth manager or an investment advisor it would never um it just wouldn't be be right for me because there were all of these frustrations with the tools and everything to run your business that you just can't get around being within like a big a big bank or it's, it's way harder to do mm-hmm. so uh you know it, the obvious thing for for me was to kind of transition more to something that was software and product focused because you know i was able to actually build those those tools or those solutions to be able to you know, run you know, in this case like advisor uh, advisor business mm-hmm. more more effectively. Mm-hmm. And as you transitioned, then you started working and you know, doing the things you more so enjoyed, building the tools, building the solutions uh, in these product capacities. You're still spending more time though, like building the skill inside an organization. Did it ever feel like sometimes like harder to make the jump, like when you're at the time when you're about to like leave? purpose advisors like did did it feel like it was hard to jump then then it was like leave it like when you're at crisis 
Oh yeah, I mean definitely. It was a way way different scenario. I think in general, I couldn't have asked for a much better situation to be in. I was building the type of thing that I wanted to build. Um, we had resources to do it. We had funding with with purpose. Um, I had ownership in the company, so you know, there was a lot of like really positives there. But um, the you know I, I can't really really articulate it much more than saying that there was something inside of me that said you got to go and and do something on your own and um and and just tackle it and, mm-hmm. and go for it and that that gut feeling i i definitely like i can definitely relate where it's like yeah like you you feel it it's hard to explain articulate it and sometimes it's like when you 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 do a pro and con list and there could be like 20 cons and there could be like 30 pros but usually there's just one point out of all that that just makes all the difference that practically makes you go yeah i don't really care about all the other 49 points it's just this one point is going to make all the difference and so i'm just going to go with that and some people say that's the point of a pro and con list not to really look at what's good and bad but just to figure out what that really like one point that actually matters makes all the difference is but even then it's i find it's hard when you're in in the moment to actually follow your gut sometimes like because sometimes it's like the rational part of you goes like oh god that's so irrational like what about all these things are going to happen like how how is that how is that like for you like what was that conversation like internally yeah no i think um it it just i don't even remember exactly what what was the moment that i decided that i was going to to make the move but at one point uh i was discussing with my wife and and was saying okay like you know have I do I have enough money saved up to be able to go and kind of pursue something on my own for a while? Uh, are we going to be okay? Like our expenses going to be covered? Do we have enough um, buffer with income and everything? And we said, you know what, we can we should be able to do it. So um, it's, quite, it's really just up to me. Like, is it the right time for me? And I think you know, uh, every every year that passes, you kind of see another another number go up on your age, and you say, wow, you know, this timeline feels like it's getting shorter. It's still relatively young, but um you know no time like the present yeah no it's i say like there's some podcast guests that i interview who are i think like much older than like their 40s or i think even have people in their 50s where they reference how people around them it's sometimes they'll talk about how it's too late like now i feel like i should have made a jump earlier but i can't do that now because i feel like it's too late but even then, there's some people who, like some older friends I have, where they'll be in their 30s and they'll go, oh, I think it's kind of over now. Like I can't, I can't make the jump now. But I don't know what was your what's your perspective on that? Like if you have a family and everything, you made a jump um, while having a family. It's not like you. It's a different situation than like the 22 year old who says, "I'll make a jump because what do I have to lose?" What's your perspective on people? You know choosing to make a jump, even having a family and having all these responsibilities. Yeah, I think, I think uh, it, it really depends on your like, individual situation and what kind of your cash flow needs are going to mm-hmm. be. I think if you have cash flow needs and should be a lot more focused uh, early on and doing something that you're, you're bootstrapping, you're able to kind of self-fund and then take the, take the jump. Like it doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can work a lot on the side and, and get something off the ground and then, and then go from there. Um, I think like age-wise, you know, uh, I, they've, they've shown many times that there's way more successful founders that are, you know, more like 40 and up rather uh, first time founders than 
than in their 20s or early 30s. And I think part of that is because uh, when you look at a lot of different startups that come up or you see different startup competitions from something like a you know university student, you'll see all these things around textbooks or you know sharing uh, like dating apps or just stuff that's really focused on their their universe, which is still so limited. Uh, it's a lot harder to go out and um, have some kind of perspective or some kind of view on something without having actually experienced working in an industry. And, and that means not, you know, just working in the same job for 10 years, but it's, you know, jumping around a little bit and getting some different sides of, um, of the business. And in my case, it was, you know, doing both the technology side and the actual practical like wealth management side, which then kind of gives you another perspective on things. So um, for, I mean, I think for everybody, it's, it's, it's unique to them and uh, making the jump in terms of like family is really just you know, looking at the the financial situation and saying, is this is this okay? Are we going to be fine if I'm uh, not taking money in for X number of months? And if came to that decision, then then it should be okay to go. And you know, the the, the ability to look at it from like the cash flow perspective, it's very speaking of like your wealth management background, always thinking about the cash flow, which is very important. Definitely can't speak lightly about that. But given that, do you, have you like? Some some of my friends approach me as like, is there a timeline? Like, is there an end date for what I do? Where after X amount of years, I just can't do it anymore. And my perspective on that's been constantly shifting. I'd be curious to hear about yours. Um, did you like go on this journey of like, giving yourself like an end date or kind of a set parameter <clears throat> like when you will decide to like quote unquote like quit or like stop this project? Yeah, I think my my um, my end date would have already passed by now if I'm <laughs> if I'm like being honest in terms of getting something out there. So uh, it, it definitely changed. I think in this this process, the first two and a half, three months almost was just iterating different ideas and prototyping things and talking to people and then coming to something that seemed a lot more realistic and, and made more sense. So I really only got started in earnest in this and towards the end of December and developing this version. So I think it's been about two two months and I'm hoping to get out the the first version at the beginning of April. So I think it's still like a realistic timeline, but in terms of giving myself a hard date, I think the way that I think about it is that I've proven before that I have marketable skills that I can use and, and make money doing these types of things, whether it's in wealth management or technology or, you know, um, working with investment advisors to help them do more things on their processes or build software for advisors. Uh, so the way that I, that I think about it is there's kind of like a timeline to put all of my focus behind this more long shot um, uh, application that I'm, that I'm building. And then if things are not being very promising after a certain amount of time, then I would just switch over to things that are more practical, just bringing in more money and using that to kind of keep funding, keep bootstrapping. Uh, and then, you know, if see, see where I need to kind of pivot the product to, to, to get more traction, but still just uh, getting the first version out is the uh, focus number one. Mm-hmm. And how how would you describe the uh, first like five six months of being on this journey? Yeah, I think uh, I think if I recommend anything to anyone, it would be find someone to to do it with at the beginning, work on the side, split it fifty fifty to start, and then and then kind of go go from there. Um, it's a lot more difficult, especially if you're someone that analyzes things a lot to, to go off on your own and, and, and start a business. Um, 
Yeah, it's just uh, you go through a lot of a lot of ups and downs and and doubt in terms of you know am I right, building the right thing and you want the immediate payoff of knowing you know am I making the right decision on this thing is this the right direction to go and there's no there's no no one answer and there's no way to go and validate that without you know talking to a lot of people and kind of putting the work in so there's a lot of this like delayed gratification and not knowing whether or not you're making the right decisions for for quite a while at a time sometimes yeah no i that's i i definitely struggled with that earlier and i still struggle with it too i think where cuz like you said there is no you just don't know the, that actually there is an answer like but, but you kind of want an answer and sometimes you get some kind of feedback and then the overanalyzer in me goes but is that enough feedback like it, do i just go off of this do i try to get more um or like this this is so reminiscent of like even my days as an investor where like my portfolio managers would give me feedback and say dan like you're, you're really digging into it quite deep that's good but at the same time sometimes you gotta let it go and you know sometimes i'll spend like three months research, researching one company and because there's just so so much information out there and even now as i constantly try different projects like i'll try to put a limit on like I'll, I'll only speak to five people and after that five piece of data like i'll see like are they all different or is there some kind of similarity and just make a decision after that so that's, i'll try to like force myself to put a limit but yeah it's it's definitely been a process to get com- i think mentally comfortable around the fact that there might never be like a true answer yeah and i think from from my perspective of being someone that tends to you know way overanalyze things, um, one of the best things about I think my personality is that I never regret any like previous decisions. Anything that I've anything that's happened in the past, I'm I'm on you know looking looking in the future. So it's uh, you know tough when you're overanalyzing things, but it's good that if you don't you know, uh, kind of look back too much on old decisions to regret them, you know, look back to analyze, okay, but look back to regret, I, I never do that. So I can always kind of fall back on whenever I'm ready to make a decision, just saying, you know, am I making the best decision based on the information that I have right now? And then if yes, then okay, well, you know, make that decision. And it's normally never like er- too early decisions for me. So um, I can always fall back on, you know, I'm I made the best decision I feel like I could have made at that time with that info and just kind of push, push forward and, and not, not regret anything that's happened based on, on those decisions that I've made. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think for me, that was definitely a learning process too, where it was getting comfortable with just the kind of pace that I need in formulating the decisions. And like you said, we're getting comfortable with, yeah, like I overanalyze and, but for me to, be comfortable enough to make a certain decision i might just be the kind of person that needs to let this marinate and think about it maybe like for six months or something like longer than other people but once i actually decide on it then i know that i'm the kind of person to just stick with it and i won't be quitting on it so then that's how i've been able to do the self-talk and okay yeah that's fine that's just how the process is although i think in the short term it's, it's very like upsetting when i go shit i could have decided to do this a year ago when I had the idea, but yeah, I'm yeah. doing it a year later. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you ever beat yourself up about that? No, never. No, no, never. It's uh, it's kind of like on onto the next onto yeah. the next decision. Kind of figure out, uh, try to make best decision based on what's there, and then mm-hmm. yeah, I've never. Can't, I can't even think about anything that I've 
regret, like really regret from yeah. decisions in the past. No, that's true. Yeah, I can definitely agree that. Like truly regretting, no, nah, definitely not. Like I, I was talking to um, my my dad because he's an entre- he's been an entrepreneur for about like fifteen years, um, and so catching up with him last week, and I was like, you know, you, you know, like it's hard right now, like, but definitely don't regret any of the decisions I've made. I think I've made all the right ones so far. A bit of confirmation bias, but. I think that's I need that to live live with all this as well. Yeah. Um, but you also mentioned like you're a, you're a solo founder yourself, and you mentioned about how you tell people like, yeah, you should probably recruit someone and do it together. And I've had you know solo founders, people who are co-founders on my podcast, and people I think people who are co-founders will talk about oh you should have co-founders, and people who are solo founders will also kind of. They will say like, yeah, it's nice to have co-founders, but there are also perks of being a solo founder. Like, for you, what are what are some times when you like the fact that you are a solo founder, and sometimes when you go, oh yeah, I kind of wish I had a co-founder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I think uh, it's nice. It would be nice to have someone else to to just be in the trenches with in terms of kind of pushing through. And then if you if you're doing something on your own, it's always that much harder to to deal with any kind of ups or downs because. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's good that you're ultimately accountable and you're in charge of your own destiny, but, uh, it also means that you're doing a lot of different things. There's a lot of different, um, a lot of different parts of this, you know, the business that I'm doing, uh, personally right now, which would be good to spread over more, more people. Uh, and just, I don't know, I think, um, I think anytime that you're working by yourself entirely compared to working with other people, it's a lot nicer to be working with, with other people. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with the ups and downs? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of have been going, been going on runs if I'm like really stressed out about something. Uh. But uh, the yeah, the first first couple of months tough, tough. Um, uh, just getting to the right, you know, the, the problem has always been kind of defined in what what I've been trying to solve, and it's really this kind of like millennial age, getting better budgeting, financial planning. I think um, there's a lot of services out there. Uh, people still practically have um, a lot of issues with just managing their money overall and making good good decisions with money. So uh, the problem was always there. It was just you know how exactly to 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 make the solution and am I going in the right direction? Because there's a lot of these a lot of different incarnations of solving this problem that involve you know more like higher touch, like lower touch, like actually connecting people with planners versus or and advisors with. Um, providing them in house with making it more of like a self serve solution, and um, you know, there's a lot of different changes along the way where I put a lot of effort towards one one solution, and then just completely scrapped it and then started over again. So um, some some of those things it, it's uh, it's it's rough when you're going through it, but I've just been you know trying to do some kind of exercise to move on past that one and then just go on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, um, that, well, this is my personal experiences. I, I try to solve it where, you know, I'll try to like, talk to friends about it and stuff, but I've also found that my friend groups have had to just kind of evolve just in nature, just going on this kind of path where it's just harder for my friends from like the professional service world that I'm from to be able to like understand or empathize with like the situation I'm in. And, I've seen that as like a a natural evolution, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, hmm, that was a little surprising. I just didn't expect it to be like that. 
Yeah, I think I think uh, for me, it's been still has a similar. I don't think that the friend situation has changed too much because of that. I think there's been um, I've had good friends that have either like come or go from the city, which is probably like a bigger effect than mm. uh, than the change to doing this because mm. you know my day to day life is still relatively the same when I you know leave uh, leave WeWork and I go go back home. It's you know that part of it is pretty similar to what it was before. I always was trying to play around and um, figure things out later at night. So now I'm just you know if I'm done working here and I want to get a little bit more working, then I'll I'll work on this at night. So um, so yeah, it hasn't like my my day to day life hasn't like changed too much outside. Actually, on, on that point, like the like when you're building your own thing, I find there's a I feel I feel like at least for me there's a comparatively greater push to always feel like you're doing more or like a desire to constantly be doing more work um, and a bit of sometimes anxiety of like, shouldn't I be doing more work just because this is my project. It's nothing's going to happen if I don't execute on it. And these kind of things sometimes happen at night when I'm no longer, you know, working out of WeWork or somewhere else. And how, does that happen to you? And if it does, like, how do you kind of, how how have you decided to like, deal with it? Do you just pound through the work at night? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think I felt that a lot more when I was not doing it full time. Like when mm-hmm. I when I was uh, working at other jobs and you know had aspirations of doing things like this, um, then I'd feel like, oh, you know, I should be learning more on the side. I should be trying to experiment more uh, in my off hours. But you know, the time is so limited that it's hard to do anything meaningful. Now uh, that I have, you know, full full time during the days to to kind of dig into all of this, uh, I get, you know, I get get actually like pretty tired by the time that I get home, and then you know just have normal like family time, and then um, and then maybe like later on at night after uh, my kids gone to bed, then maybe I'll kind of get back onto something and work a little bit more. But it just depends on how I'm feeling more yeah. in like energy levels more than. Um, you know, just feeling stressed out about not doing something. Mm. So you, you'll purposely still take time off um, and like rest and everything. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's, same thing on the weekends too. Cause it's, um, I remember there was um, one of my previous uh, employers. I went to the strategy coach and they always recommended having one for entrepreneurs, having one, um, one free day. So one, at least one day a week where you're not doing anything related to the work. Because when you are an entrepreneur, you, you know, generally have like that pressure to, to always be working on something. And if you're never unplugging, um, then you just kind of eventually burn out. So, uh, so I think that that's helped me is like on the weekend, normally have at least like one day where hanging out with the family and, and doing stuff that's not really related to work. Mm-hmm. Um, more or less, at least like big, big, big blocks of time. Mm-hmm. Have you felt like you've burned out any time during these past six months? <clears throat> yeah, I think before uh, the first few months of like, because uh, it was a lot for me being like a much more uh, introverted person, the uh, talking to like, all of the users and everything and um, doing pretty much nonstop interviews, cold calls. I was doing a lot of cold calls, to different financial planners, advisors, um, and then just, you know, setting up interviews with end users. And it was, it was a lot of talking. And those are those are the days for me that are the most tiring It's where. I've been on the phone the entire day. I've been talking with people the entire day. Um, so after, you know, months of that and then not knowing, you know, I think there was probably like even two months in where I had gone through a couple of different versions, talked to so many people, and then at times felt still very, very confused about what 
how the solution was going to solve the problem and if I'm you know completely wrong so uh, so there there were some times there where it was it was getting uh, getting really difficult now that it's more clear at least it can kind of have like a normal cadence to like what my what my week looks like and um, how I like plan out my days mm-hmm. and like now you, you say that you know now you have um, kind of more of a clearer picture of the direction and how you're going to proceed but when you were deciding to take the jump um you know people there are definitely like a lot of players making noise in like the wealth management space you know there's like the big guys like wealthfront and wealth simple who kind of are kind of leading the charge of like we're gonna fintech and having like a nice big sign there and it can seem like sometimes like a crowded space in that in that way but when i find that when you have an idea and you want to create something, usually it's because like you see something that the other people might not see. Like from the big outside, like people might think, oh, they look all look the same. But then there's like a nuance and there's like a weird niche that you want to target. For you, what was that when you decided to like make a jump? <clears throat> and how does that compare to like the vision, like what you see now? Yeah, I think uh, I think it, it it has to do with a lot of those the people that you you mentioned. So. You know, Simple came in. Um, I remember seeing them from like the very early days and really liking what they were doing because it's just something that made a lot of sense. You know, taking down the cost to give people a diversified portfolio and uh, put a nice experience around it. So, um, so from from early on, what that did is that nobody, the banks were really worried about it because they just felt like, you know, we're going to see how they see how they do. And if they do well, then we'll just try to build something similar and then just, you know, enable it for all of our, you know, millions of customers. Um, but what it did that was really important is that it really set this price. It put this line in the, stand, uh, line in the sand for uh, portfolio construction. So now we're used to go to all these different financial planners or wealth managers to go and get a you know a portfolio done for you, and you normally paid anywhere from one to you know one and a half percent in fees on like an annual basis to them. They um, they had at the same time you know a lot of these advisors transitioned over to being fee based as opposed to like commission based and how they made money, and they a lot of people what they did was um, they either constructed portfolios or did manner uh, third party fund manager selection and constructed appropriate portfolios for people based on their risk, but they were charging, you know, one to one and a half percent for it. So what well simple did is that it kind of put this line in the sand at whatever it is, 35 basis points. And, um, and then told all these wealth managers, okay, well, you're going to have to, if you want to charge one, one and a half percent. You got to justify all this other value proposition that, that you're giving for charging so much more. Sorry. I'm just going to, for people who don't know what a basis point is, is, 35 basis point is 0.35%. So yeah. 1% would be 100 basis points. Just to clarify that for some people who are not in finance. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So the, I think the main thing that, that that changed was that the whole wealth management industry, I think, has put a lot more focus behind goals-based wealth management. And what that means is that really getting the goals that people have and lining up the portfolios and different accounts that they're using to, to match up with that. Uh, but the... Overall, the traditional banking industry is still pretty siloed in terms of, you know, wealth managers within a bank don't have great access to or any access to like the banking side of things, you know, what banking products you have, what your checking account and savings accounts are over there. So they're really not in a great position to give very, very holistic advice a lot of the time. 
uh, for these are like the you know like the minion securities kind of um, advisors. But that's where they're trying to justify their their value proposition is giving you this more holistic wealth management, everything from um, from financial planning to estate planning and insurance, and like they give you this whole picture in one. Uh, where where I think there's um, there was a gap there is that with a lot of these third party um, services that have come up that let you connect people's bank accounts, so the things that like Mint, uh, the financial planning or financial uh, budgeting app, worked on early in early days. Um, it allows you now to have access to at least more information about a person. And there was this kind of hypothesis that, you know, for 80% of people that have relatively simple needs that are mostly unaddressed by these, um, these like higher net worth wealth managers, you, you can do a lot of really good work for giving people um, like best practices on budgeting, financial planning and advice, just based on getting their picture together in, in, in one place. So that's a lot of what uh, I tried to build build the app around was, you know, how do we make this experience for a person so that they can, one, see, you know, high level of their budgeting and, and understand what money's coming in, where it's going every month, put together what their goals are, and then be able to recommend to them, you know, like what you should be prioritizing with your money, which account types you should be using, um, and then be able to just let them do that on top of whatever existing services that they use. So really like bring in their whole picture together, whether at one bank or multiple banks or using different services. So I think, uh, just the difference for me when I was leaving, leaving there and starting something on my own, it was seeing that there's still, it was kind of like V1 of, of fintechs happened and a lot of these individual services have come out. But if you kind of go back down to the fundamentals of, you know, what problems people have with their money, I think that. Uh, and managing their their finances, there's still tons and tons of room. It's just kind of like the next version of this, which a lot of people are going to be after also, but it's still not as crowded as, um, you know, these more more targeted approaches. And do you feel in the past six months that you've gotten more conviction on that hypothesis? Yeah, I think um, I think the 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 problem is definitely there. Um, you know, just making, making good financial decisions. I think everybody, you know, when you have a decision of, you know, whether or not I should buy a house or not, or, you know, if should I be investing this money? Uh, if I have, you know, these, these different goals, like should it be in a savings account? Should I be invested? Uh, a lot of these things where you, you go and then it's hard to get an easy answer because you normally have to put in all this work to explain to someone the full situation before you can get a really good personalized answer. Um, so I think that, I mean, the, the problem is, is there to be able to help people make better decisions with their money. Uh, the question is really, can you make the solution simple and intuitive enough that, uh, that really helps people without it being too onerous? Cause it's a very complicated, um, world just by nature. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a, a pretty big problem that can address, that can impact a lot of people. Has it ever felt to you that the problem just feels like so big and, you know, you're just, you're doing it as a solo founder too. So I'm just curious on whether, yeah, like just the grand, grandiosity of the problem has sometimes ever kind of weighed on you. I was like, how am I going to actually solve this? Yeah, I think, I think the, the, the complexity of building the product and, and, and solving you know, the, the problems for the, the end user, it's, it is very like complicated and there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, just complexity in, in the problem. So I think that the, the way that I tried to address it was one by 
making it something that you can start with relatively limited inputs and then you can kind of build up the um, the uh, the personalized aspect of it over time and the way that I've kind of been thinking about it in terms of providing that service to users or just getting something out there when it's a really complicated product to build is can I build this, you know, v- version one of this, something that I can get into the hands of people that I can either personally work with people or work with uh, financial uh, coaches or planners who would find value in, in uh, giving this to their clients as well. And then just, just, helping the first kind of cohort of people actually manage their money better using it and then figure out how we can make this um, this product more and more easy to use more and more automatic without any kind of touch from from the uh, you know some kind of financial professional mm-hmm. and in in regards to this the the journey you've been going on as a full-time entrepreneur now what's what's been something that's been very surprising to you in the journey so far because like, there are things where you know we can read about it in books and like you know you you can read about peter Thiel or what tim ferris says and we go okay yeah i should expect that and then out for me like i'll still make the mistake and i'm like oh that's what they were talking about but it kind of, it's not that surprising but what are things that kind of just kind of surprise you in, in this journey so far said, well, hmm. i don't know if it's like a huge huge surprise but confirmed was the, just how long how long it takes you know it takes a it takes a really long time to to you know in a very very uh competitive market so there's lots of different um products and services being built now it's way easier to build solutions for any kind of problem so there's just so much more noise so much more um, competition out there that um it takes a while just to get the find the right kind of niche the right kind of problem and the right type of solution that that addresses it to try to get to you know some kind of product market fit um yeah it just it takes a takes a long time to 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 really prove that out Mm -hmm. and is that in reference to like right now i guess it's been about five six months since you and full-time into moment is it how does it compare to what you initially thought it would be like did you initially think it would take maybe a month but now it's taken like five months or no i think i think uh i think getting to the real like the I, f- I felt like the start line was around the end of the year, so mm-hmm. that's when I really kind of started. So I feel like that kind of first, um, a lot of the user discovery, a lot of the um, like customer development type process, that uh, it just takes a long time. And mm-hmm. I thought that you'd be able to go go through it quicker, but it's just you know it's just difficult to find the right people to talk to the right people to kind of synthesize the information, and um, yeah, it just takes takes uh, a long time. Mm-hmm. And- are you, are you kind of the main developer behind your product too, or I think you also outsourced to some of it? Right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, in in uh, for, since we started this, I um, I use some outsourced development, especially to get kind of like some of the core like infrastructure off the ground, and I've done enough um, work on my own in software development that now I've kind of taken over um, a lot of it because. A lot of the different like financial planning aspects of it, and um, and just just the structure of how how it works in terms of like the the, the financial planning side of it, uh, it's actually kind of been easier for me to to step in and do the work rather than you know describe the entire thing, um, give it to developers, make sure that they do it, you know go back and check the code, make sure they do it right, 
it's it's kind of crossed over to where they've done a lot of the fundamental architecture of it. And for me to kind of build in more of the business logic part of it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's easier for me to go in and do it. Mm-hmm. And what what would you say motivates you to constantly build this out and go through the long process of anything? <clears throat> yeah, I think I think on the actual like problem side, the um, just that it's it's increasingly there's there's lots of solutions out there that address different parts of managing your money. Yet we still find so many people that have a really tough time either getting started or just making sense of their finances. And I think that there's still still lots of lots of opportunity to to solve those problems for people that, you know, uh, if there's no good solution out there, it means that they go to could be either like a branch or it could be some, you know, someone else that's, you know, in a specific product vertical that almost pushes like a specific type of product on you or doesn't have the right incentive in terms of giving that end end client like the best service. Uh, So for me, it's just been, you know, I think that there's a better way to solve this problem for, for the end user and the end client and just wanting to, wanting to build it, wanting it to be, to be out there and and kind of contribute towards it. Hmm. Do you have a practice of like celebrating like small wins to help like motivate you continuously? No, I don't think so. Not really. I probably probably should more. Uh, um, you know, from like the motivation point of view, or just like yeah, kind of. Just I guess um, in a way of getting feedback on like why you're doing all this. So, like for example, like for me, um, as I've been building out the podcast, building out the whole platform, like whenever a listener or someone who reads my essays like writes in and talks tells me about how this was valuable or to like keep on producing good content um that works as like a motivator for me like it's like those like small wins where like kind of like a reminder of like oh yeah i know why like reminds me of why i'm doing this so i can kind of continue to push through on the journey yeah i think not 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 specifically but i think kind of just naturally within within days i kind of We'll uh, we'll have different different moments where I'm, I've tackled something or I've kind of solved some kind of problem that I didn't know if I'd be able to do on my own or without you know um, more more help from from other people. So a lot of those things I kind of celebrate. But for me, the real I think the first real um, uh, milestone will be just getting getting V1, getting um, the first people using it is going to be the the real the real thing that um, is the first big win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever feel tired? <laughs> I, I know, like, I, I think that was, like, the conversation I had with you yesterday where I just told you, oh, I just feel so tired. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> definitely, definitely comes up and it comes, comes in waves. But uh, I just try to, when that, when it comes up, I just try to unplug a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's a bit harder in the, in the winter, but just do something <laughs> to distract and then, and then come back to it. But it hasn't been long enough that I feel like, um, that I'm tired from just trying to pursue this because mm. I feel more like, you know, the, there's just this motivation to like, keep, keep pushing through to actually getting to launch date mm. and whatever I have to do to push through and get there, like whether or not um, it becomes a success or it doesn't become a success. It doesn't, you know, I, I can't like that. That first target is, is the, the launch date. And um, uh, you know, there's nothing that's going to, stop me from being motivated until until we get through there Mm -hmm. and 
I don't know if we've actually talked about your age. How old uh, are you right now? Uh, 33. Okay. And so if we reflect back to, let's say, your 20-year-old self, (laughs) 13 years ago, that's like third year university, I think. So third year in Carleton, Miguel. If that Miguel were to look at you right now, what do you think um, his emotional reaction would be to what you're doing? I think he probably would have said about about time to yeah. to have like done something on on my own. I think mm-hmm. there's definitely benefit to, to knowing an industry and um, and working towards it. But I think that with a lot of the different methods out there, uh, especially for like customer development, kind of like the the Steve Blank framework for just doing value proposition and you know business model canvas and and finding the right problem and getting the customer gains, the pains, and and kind of just putting laying that stuff out there. I mean, they're, they're like, there are systems out there to whether or not you have industry, like deep industry knowledge to be able to solve a problem for someone um, and to be able to do it based on the resources that are out there. So I think it probably would have probably would have tried to do something on my own, maybe like five years sooner. Mm. And so then if you were to give that 20 year old advice, would it be to start things sooner? <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think, I think, uh, I think it's just take advantage of what's what's out there. There's like infinite amount of different resources to learn from. Um, you just need to find out how to kind of put a couple of them together to solve a problem in a creative way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it can seem like um, it seem like those there's you know all the problems are being addressed by someone, but every layer of new solutions normally means or new products that go out there. There's normally like another layer. Um, of different uh, different problems that arise, or, mm-hmm. so so there's always going to be more more opportunity out there. It's just um, I think starting starting earlier, better using the resources that are out there, and being as practical as possible as as early as possible um, is what I would try to do. What What do you think stopped you from starting earlier? I think probably just not uh, one. I was always in being in the wealth management industry. It um, I was going down that path. Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, obvious to me how to how to solve a, a problem for like an investment advisor, being um, on my own. And then after I kind of went to went to Crisis, then I at least was able to say, okay, well, you know, I, here's a way that I can do something for these advisors. Um, when I left there and and kind of got a couple of contracts on the side. Uh, so I, I kind of kept going down that path and then, you know, the opportunity with purpose came up right after, which was like a really kind of a way to accelerate it. So I, I kind of went down that path, but it just wasn't with jumping with both feet. It was kind of like dipping, dipping my toes in the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I find that's a tricky one. Whether you, like, this is another thing like the overanalyzer. Like, when do you know <laughs> to jump in with both feet? Yeah, I think I think it also depends on your your personality too, yeah. right? Like some some people, uh, one of the things that we had um, an HR person come to me with in terms of knowing for employees, like knowing their motivations, is really important. And they had this wheel that kind of said, you know, do people care more about recognition, or is it compensation, mm-hmm. or is it um, uh, you know knowing that they have like expertise over a, uh, over a domain or, or whatever? But there was this this wheel that they had and. You know, some people, they just like to be the boss of what they do, know what they, you know, know their job, do it really well, clock in, clock out. 
and then are way more interested in other things on the side. And then that's perfect for them. You know, they should continue to do that. But if you're the type of person, I think that, um, that has like a real entrepreneurial aspiration, then I feel like you're going to be unhappy no matter what you do. That's not pursuing it. It's just figuring out, okay, if I, if I try, you know, version one of doing this and it doesn't work, how do I, how do I get to version two or version three without, um, without kind of just falling back into, um, the, the, your, your previous path? Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a, that's probably a, a good place to end our chat today, but we yeah, like, before we kind of sign off, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you kind of want us to talk about or kind of wanted to share? No, no, not, not really. I think we covered, <laughs> covered a few things there. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when can people then expect to, like, if they're interested in like using moment to, you know, help their own financial planning, like when can they expect to see um, the app go live and yeah. where should they find it? <clears throat> yeah. So you can go to momentfinancial.com. You can sign up for the, the wait list that's on there right now. So we have a bunch of, uh, a lot of signups already. And um, if you're interested in it or you're kind of, you know, your interest is peaked more also from, you know, hey, is a problem that I'm really passionate about because I've, I've come across a lot of people that are passionate in, um, in solving these personal finance issues for themselves and for other people. Uh, definitely don't hesitate to get, get in touch. Uh, find me on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Miguel Fernando. And, um, and yeah, we can, uh, we can get together and chat or, or see if there's some kind of fit or partnership or something like that too. Awesome. All right, my friend. Thanks for coming on the podcast and making this conversation extremely fun and enjoyable. Cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. It, hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different, maybe challenging yourself, being courageous, who knows. But regardless, I'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest. And if you would like to somehow, in some way, contribute and help support the podcast, and maybe even just be part of the community that I'm trying to build with the greater OMD Ventures platform, really think about being a stakeholder in the platform. And the quick way to do that is to go to my website, oldmandan.com, and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content, but at the same time, also donate and donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that, you know, if you wanted to chat with me, you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee. Or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat, you might buy them a coffee. So I'm just think of it as I'm the service that's doing that for you. So you can just pay me in coffees. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, everything will still be free. It's just It would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that I can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at, and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because 
it all this is, isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder all right thank you